Uh, I'm Marianne Talbot. Um, I'm Director of Studies in Philosophy here. Um, I know quite a few faces, um, but I won't know your names. There are a few names I know. I hope I'll get to know your names over the weekend. And uh, anyway, welcome. So uh, we're going to start. Um, oh, and I should say hello to everyone on the podcast. Uh, we're being podcast today as well, so um, you'll be able to watch it again in a few weeks' time uh, on video. Okay, let's get started. We're going to start with logic and argument. And the reason we're going to start with logic and argument uh, is because that's the methodology of philosophy. Um, so um, in philosophy, what we do is we use arguments to try and get to uh, or to get from things that we already know or we think we know or we believe we might know two other things that will be true if the other thing is true, if our premise is true. Um, and what I, uh, the best way of showing you is to actually do one, and so I'm going to spend today doing one. We're going to analyse and evaluate a very famous argument. Have you heard of Descartes' cogito ergo sum? Does anyone know what it means? I think, therefore, I am. You're absolutely right. There you are. Very good start. Okay, so Descartes, uh, here he is. That's René Descartes, 1596 to 1650. Um, very famous philosopher. And, and actually, the more I read of Descartes, the more brilliant I think he was. He wasn't just a philosopher. He was also a scientist and mathematician. These were the days when, when of course, one wasn't as constrained as one is these days um, to a particular discipline. Um, so he was as famous as a mathematician and as a philosopher. Um, and his cogito is found in his Meditations on First Philosophy, first published in 1641. And that was published with a set of six objections to his claims uh, and his replies to those objections. And they're still, whenever the meditation is published, it's always published with the objections and the replies. And in 1642, a seventh objection was added and his reply to that. So when you hear of Descartes, uh, the objections and the replies, that's, you'll always find them in the meditations. Okay, well, the argument we're concerned with appears in Meditation 2. Um, but I think you need to know about Meditation 1 in order to understand Meditation 2. Um, and anyway, there are some rather nice arguments in Meditation 1 that I'm going to get you started on. Hi there. So, okay, in Meditation 1, Descartes has introduced and applied his favorite, famous method of doubt. Okay, the method of doubt is hugely important. Um, it's a sort of preemptive scepticism. Um, and incidentally, I should have told you this before, I have copies of all these slides for you. I don't want to give them to you now because I don't want you to know the answers to the questions I'm going to ask <laughs> as I ask them. Um, so you don't need to feel that you've got to write everything down because everything that's on the slides will, is already written down. You'll be able to see that later on. Uh, and it's nicely typed, so you'll be able to read it too. Okay, so what is this method of doubt? Um, well, it's treating as if false any belief about which he can entertain even the slightest doubt. So I called it a preemptive scepticism. And what I meant by that is lots of your beliefs, um, you have at the moment, you can doubt them. Um, so you might think they're true, but actually if I ask you, are, they sh are you sure it's true, you might say, 
well, no, not positive. I suppose it might be false. Well, Descartes is taking that as being reason to, to say that that belief is, he's going to treat it as if it's false, because it's just possible it is false. And the analogy that Descartes uh, himself gives is with a basket of apples. You know that some of them are rotten, but you don't know which ones. Uh, and the best thing to do is to take them out, each of them, and have a look at them, and to put the rotten ones on one side, so you're left only with the the non-rotten apples. And that's what he wants to do with his beliefs. He wants to take out any belief of which he can't be certain, put it on one side in his doubting basket, I call it, like the basket of apples. Uh, and what he hopes is he'll be left with beliefs that are certain. Um, and the point of doing this is to find out whether we can have knowledge at all. Um, because the thing about knowledge, um, if, if to know something is to, be cert to know that it's true, to be certain of it. So if we can have knowledge we've, um, on this idea, he's got to be certain of it. So that's the way he's doing it, a preemptive scepticism. So there are three levels of doubt, and I'm going to take you through each one. The first is the argument from illusion, uh, then the argument from from dreaming and then the evil demon argument. Have you heard about these arguments? Some of, some of you have and some of you haven't. Hi there. Okay, the argument from illusion. Okay, your senses have deceived you in the past, haven't they? Okay, has everyone had a situation where they thought that the dress was blue until they got it home and then it turned out to be black or whatever? Um, so you've, you've thought that something you've seen in the distance has been round and it turns out to be square or whatever. Um, so we all know that our senses have deceived us in the past. Um, now Descartes is, is engaged in the method of doubt. I shouldn't trust anything that has deceived me in the past, he says. Therefore, I shouldn't trust my senses. Okay, well, um, here's a, a blue that looks black in places, by the way. Um, should Descartes reject as if false any belief based on sensory perception as a result of that argument? What do people think? Okay, so he's noted that all his sensory, well, his senses have deceived him in the past. Sometimes he's been wrong about beliefs based on his senses. Um, and he's, he's treating as if false any belief he, he can find the slightest doubt. So should he reject all the beliefs based on the senses? I mean, that's quite useful, isn't it? That's putting a whole slew of beliefs in the doubting basket immediately. Put up your hand if you think he should. Put right up so I can see you. OK, put up your hand if you think he shouldn't. Quite a lot of you. OK, that's interesting. Uh, put up your hand if you're standing on the fence, sitting on the fence. Very sensible. <laughs> I, I shouldn't tell you that that option is available, really, because um, you'll all start taking it from now on. OK, those of you who think that um, he should doubt them, what's your argument? What's your reason for thinking that he should doubt them? I mean, you might think that I, I need to ask you that because I've already told you, but is that the, the reason? Okay, so he's doubting anything uh, that he can't be sure of, and he's, his senses have deceived him in the past, so he can throw away all his sensory beliefs. Okay, those who don't think that he can um, throw away all his sensory beliefs, why not? So then he leaves you very much. 
Uh, that's irrelevant. The, the fact that it doesn't leave us very much... Actually, it leaves us quite a lot, because, I mean, any mathematical belief, 2 plus 2 equals 4 isn't a sensory belief, is it? And there are all sorts of other things that aren't sensory beliefs. So, but, it, but if it doesn't leave you very much, that's not a problem. Because Descartes is, is treating as if false any belief he can doubt. And what he's hoping for is he'll be left with something certain. But if he's not left with anything certain, he, he's got what he needs to find out, hasn't he? So the fact it doesn't leave him very much is not an argument. OK, why else? What, what do you think, sir? But surely your senses are essentially developed as a result of natural selection. So they serve a function and to not trust it. You know, our sense that something is hot and you get touched. So okay, so you, you think that we've got to trust our senses because they've evolved the through natural selection. Right. Um, to totally disregard them would be counterintuitive. Okay, I, I, quite, I quite like your argument, but it's not the one I'm looking for. So <laughs> do you mind if I come back to it in a minute? Go on. There might be something out there that he hasn't thought of yet that might be true. Or that he hasn't had this. Um, uh, there might be. There are lots of beliefs. I mean, at the moment, he's only considering sensory beliefs. Do you mean sensory beliefs? Well, there might be something that he hasn't had that perception of as yet in his life. Um, but even so, that wouldn't be a reason for not uh, for trusting his sensory beliefs, would he? Because what he's, he's seen that they deceive him in the past. So why would he believe this new thing? I mean, if, if he can put all his sensory beliefs in the doubting basket, which is what you're questioning, um, then why would the fact that there might be a sensory belief he'd come to in future... That he could trust. But why would he trust it, given that it's a sensory belief, if you see what I mean? If his sensory beliefs are all in the doubting basket because he can't trust his senses then why would any... I, I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't a sensory belief that perhaps shouldn't be in the doubting basket, but I'm saying you haven't given me one yet. But good try. What about, what about expecting the sun to come up in the morning? Um, well, that's not really a sensory belief, is it? Um, that's an inductive belief. I mean, you, your belief that the sun has come up in the past is based on your senses, but your belief that the sun will come up tomorrow isn't, is it? Your belief that the sun will come up tomorrow is based on induction from the fact that it's come up before. Um, maybe, but, but, but we're not looking at those beliefs at the moment. We're looking just at sensory beliefs, it's the beliefs that we form on the basis of our senses. So the chair is blue, or, or the sun is rising now, or that sort of thing. So if you feel burning and then you have evidence of burn, a burn, it's the evidence not. Of the oh, I, okay. So, um, yes, okay. You, you feel the burn, and then you can see the burn. Okay, that's, that's a good one, actually. Shall I tell you? Mm -hmm. Am I being... Go on, have you got one more? Just, just one more. Well, we're not dreaming at the moment. We're talking about actual sensory beliefs, forming the belief that the chair is blue. Yes. 
Okay, that's also a very good one. Actually, all your answers are, are good ones. Um, let, let's have a look at why this isn't the case. Um, actually, he shouldn't reject as if false, not on the basis of that argument. We only know that our senses have deceived us in the past by relying on our senses, haven't we? Um, so if you've taken the dress home from the shop thinking it was blue, and then you get home, you see that it's black, okay? And so uh, uh, one sensory experience causes you to, to doubt the other sensory experience. So the fact that your senses de deceived you in the past is no evidence not to trust your senses, because the only evidence you have that your senses have, mistrusted, uh, have deceived you in the past is that sometimes you've trusted your senses, isn't it? It's trusting your senses that show you that your senses have sometimes deceived you. So you can't get away, you can't throw away all your sensory beliefs, can you? You can throw away the ones that were, were made in bad lighting or, or from a distance or something like that, but you can't throw them all away. And here's another reason. If you put a stick in water, it looks bent, doesn't it? Because refraction makes it look bent. Okay, you, you see the stick out of water and you think it's straight, put it in water, oh, it looks bent. Okay, two sensory beliefs, the stick is straight and the stick is bent. Uh, which one is the correct one? Okay, pretend you don't have any theory of re refraction, you've never seen this before. Um, how do you tell which belief is the correct one? Okay, these beliefs are inconsistent, the, the stick cannot be both straight and bent. So which belief is the correct one? Um, okay, but how would you test which one was false? I think you can. You'd feel it. You'd put your stick in it. So you, you, that's another sense as well. And that's another sense, exactly so. So what you'd do is you'd feel the stick um, in the water and you'd feel that even though it appears bent, it is straight. So there's something funny about sticking a stick in water rather than that the, putting the stick in the water makes the stick bend. Stick doesn't bend, it just looks bent. So you're quite right. What you do is you test one of your senses by appeal to another sense. So again, the fact that your senses have deceived you in the past doesn't mean you can put all your sensory beliefs in the doubting basket. Okay, all you can put in the doubting basket um, is the beliefs formed under suboptimal conditions when the light wasn't right when you were at a distance or so on. Now, this one doesn't mention evolution at all. Um, I think, it, um, I think if, if Descartes were to rely on evolution at this point, he would be in trouble, wouldn't he? Because he'd immediately have to question his beliefs in evolution and so on. Whereas this one, he's, he's responding to his own argument from within um, what he can know for sure. Um, is that fair enough? So how do we account for colorblindness? Sorry? How do we account for colorblindness? Um, well, we don't really need to account for the colorblind person. I mean, he, he is, uh, by definition, in suboptimal conditions when it comes to looking for colors. Um, so he is accounted for, perhaps we can say. Aren't you simply transferring the problem to using the words of optimal conditions? No, what was, okay, so what, we've got the doubting basket here, and we want to, we, we're putting in it anything of which we can't be certain. 
And what we're putting into it is any belief that's been formed when we have reason to mistrust our senses, if you like. But your suboptimal might, might be my optimal. But we're, we're not worried about, oh, okay. No, good question. Let me address this. This is important. Descartes' thought experiment is 100% um, a first personal thought experiment. And this will become very important later on. Uh, each of us can only do it for ourselves. We, we don't need to take into account other people. I am considering my beliefs. You are considering your beliefs. So from the inside, as it were, you're considering the fact that sometimes your beliefs have deceived you in the past. And sometimes um, the times that they've deceived you, the conditions have been suboptimal. You've formed them too quickly or something like that. So absolutely right. Very important. It's a first personal thought experiment. Why would I necessarily conclude that my erroneous belief was based on some optimal external condition? Why wouldn't I start, trying, start saying, oh, but maybe I am a suboptimal person when it comes to evaluating things? Well, inside me. Um, it might be, but that's not the point at this point. All you're doing is you're looking for beliefs about which you can form a doubt of some kind. Um, okay, well, the doubts that you're forming, there are some sensory beliefs that I doubt. Um, but I don't doubt that this chair is blue. I have no reason to doubt that the chair is blue. I'm coming down here, I'm looking at it. Yes, it's blue in this light. If I, um, So Descartes isn't, and this is very important, he isn't sort of doubting for no reason. He's taking beliefs for which he has reasons, so he, he, he thinks they're true. They are his beliefs. You don't have a belief unless you think it's true. And he's looking at that belief and thinking, okay, despite my reason for thinking it true, have I got a reason for thinking it's false? Now, if I look at... Um, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to find somebody. For, okay, this, this lady's red um, jumper here, um, it's quite a way away from me, uh, and the light's quite bright, and I've, I've got the data projector signing in my eyes. Um, I'm, I'm a bit inclined to say I'm not entirely sure that your sweater is red. It might be orange. Um, but when I come down here and I look at this chair, I, I have no reason to doubt that belief based on my senses. This is blue. Do you see? We've got to have a reason for doubting. But let's give you another reason for doubting. We've not got much in the sensory, uh, in the doubting basket at the moment. Let's, let's look if we can get a bit more in. So, you know, but I just, we wouldn't have much left. You said, well, that, perhaps that's true if we got rid of all sensory beliefs, but we haven't. We've only got rid of a small subsection of sensory beliefs. Okay, this is the argument from dreaming. Do you like the pussycat? He's dreaming of a mouse. Okay, I've previously believed things were thus and so, and then discovered I was asleep. Okay, unless I can distinguish being, between being awake and being asleep, I should reject as if false any belief that would be false were I asleep. Okay, now, I said earlier, okay, I can't doubt that this chair's blue, but if I take into account the possibility that I'm dreaming this, actually, I can doubt it, can't I? Immediately, I bring in, okay, there's no reason to doubt this sensorily, 
But there is, a, uh, there is a reason to doubt it. I think I might be asleep and I can't tell whether I'm asleep or awake. As if I'm asleep, I promise you I'm, asleep, I'm in bed and there aren't any blue chairs in my room. Okay, so if you can't distinguish being, being awake and asleep, then surely we should put into the doubting basket any beliefs that would be false if I were asleep. So now that doesn't mean it's all beliefs. Again, two plus two is four. If I dream that, I'm not wrong, am I? Okay. Um, but if I dream this chair is blue, that could be doubted, couldn't I? Because if, if I'm asleep, there is no chair that I'm thinking about or something like that. So immediately you've got much more in the doubting basket. Um, okay, should I reject as if false, any belief that would be false if I were asleep. Put up your hand if you think yes. So, okay, we've got again a load of beliefs that we think are true, but we've taken into account the possibility we might be... Okay, you think that you're watching Talbot Lecture. Okay, you think that you're in, a, in Ruley House Lecture Theatre, you're seeing me and... You've had lunch and you're feeling reasonably full and so on. But, but actually, you might wake up any minute um, and think, oh, God, I've got to go through all that again. Mind you. Um, I mean, the fact is you're not watching Talbot Lecture if you're asleep in bed. Is that not true? OK. So, OK, should we put all the beliefs that would be false if we were asleep in the doubting basket? Put your hand up if you think yes. Right up. Have the courage of your convictions. Good, okay. Put up your hand if you think no. Knew I shouldn't have told you you could sit on the fence. Okay, a few of you think no. Who's sitting on the fence? Very sensible. Okay, who thinks no? You should think no. The first thing is I've got to know if I'm asleep or not. How do I know if I'm asleep or not? OK, yeah, you can't distinguish between being awake and being asleep, can you? That's, that's very important. Um, actually, it's the other way round. Because you might say to me, actually, when I'm down here looking at this and thinking, well, I could be asleep, you might say, how could you think that you could be asleep? I know I'm awake. You know, I can pinch myself. I can, you know, this, that and the other. Now, if I, could dis if I could be sure that I'm awake now, then I haven't got any reason to doubt this chair's blue, have I? Okay, so, so you're absolutely right that there is a, a question about whether you can't distinguish whether you're awake or asleep. Um, but, but it's the other way around. It's if you can be awake, you do have knowledge, don't you? Um, but can we distinguish being awake and being asleep? Some people think yes. Okay, who thinks no? And why? Why do you think no? Um, I mean, there certainly are times where, for example, you wake up and then you realise that you're asleep. But whilst, I, whilst I'm dreaming, there are certainly at least sometimes. It's a real surprise, dreaming. isn't it? Yeah, I'm not actively yeah. realising I'm dreaming. Yes, I think if anyone's had a lucid dream, where, as you wake up, you're really surprised to find you're awake, um, then you've got to accept that. 
Um, even if sometimes we can feel that we know. I mean, I'm prepared to say I feel I know I'm awake now, but actually, do I? I could wake up in a minute and find that actually I'm still asleep. If, so if you had that sort of lucid dream... Um, anyway, um, anyone else had a different reason? Are, Did you, you, are you still ruling out the fact that someone will make up you and say you're asleep or you're awake? In other words, are you you're ruling out a third party, as a second party, still? Um, I might believe that a third party has come up and told them, yes, but again, if I, I could dream that, couldn't I? So, so that wouldn't really help me. Yes? I'm just trying to work out this. I can understand how you might not realise you're asleep when you're dreaming, but when you're conscious and awake, I'm struggling to know. I don't but when, do you, when you're conscious and awake, do you know that you're conscious and awake and not dreaming that you're conscious and awake? Yes, because it feels... Like Always? Yes, because I'm so Always? I can't think of an occasion in my life when I haven't. Have you, you've never woken from a lucid dream and yes, been surprised? Well, then, then that's, that's all we need. But being aware that it was a dream. But it, Were you aware well. it was a dream when it was a dream? I, I'd suggest possibly yes. That in some way it felt like a different type of reality to waking reality. I, I, okay, I, yes, I, I disagree with you. <laughs> Go on. Um, actually, no, I'm, I'm going to move on now. I can see lots of people. Let's just see where we are. Okay. Um, okay, there's the question that I've already asked you and you've answered it. Um, I think, again, this is where you're claim becomes very important. We only know that we have lucid dreams because we wake up from them. And this is, we, we, we only know that we hallucinate because some, sometimes we become aware that we hallucinate. And this means that we can't always be dreaming. And what that tells us is even if I can't know now whether I'm dreaming or not, I do know that sometimes I'm awake and that therefore I can't put into the, my doubting basket every belief that would be false if I'm dreaming. Because some of them, the general ones, like grass is green, um, 2 plus 2 equals 4, I mean, those can come out of the doubting basket, can't they? Um, because sometimes I'm awake and they are true. Sorry, I didn't put that very well. Um, Okay, we can't always be dreaming, so we have conditional knowledge even of the beliefs that would be false if we were awake. Okay, sorry, if we were asleep. Okay, we've gone down two layers now. We're down, we've gone through the layer of illusion and we've gone through the layer of dreaming. And we actually haven't got a great deal in our doubting basket, have we? Um, what Descartes is showing is that actually we, we have lots of beliefs, and we've got good reason for having these beliefs. Even though we've got reason to question these beliefs, we've got good reason for having them. Okay? So we're having trouble finding beliefs that we can definitely put in the doubting basket. And, and I just point out here, lots of people... I mean, when, you, when people know you're a philosopher, they like to get you at parties and say, OK, prove to me this table exists. <laughs> 
this is very boring. Next time you find a philosopher at a party, don't try this. Um, because actually, Descartes didn't just doubt for no reason. He actually had real problem finding reasons to doubt our everyday beliefs. But let's go down to the third level. Okay, evil demon argument. That didn't come out very well, did it? That's an evil demon. Um, Okay, all my beliefs about the external world are based on the belief that my experiences have an external cause. Okay, I'm having experiences at the moment as of a class full of students. Okay, so that's an experience that I'm having. Um, and I'm assuming that the reason I'm having that experience is because you're out there causing it. Okay, the lights on and so on, but, but you are in effect the, the proper cause of my experiences. Um, and I'm also thinking that my experiences are a good guide to the external cause. Is that not right? So I'm thinking I'm having this experience and the reason I'm having this experience is it's caused by people that look like my experience says that you're like. Okay, is that, is that an absolute... Because I, the only thing I can see for sure is my experience, can't, isn't it? Um, I can't get outside and check the cause of my experience. And if you say, well, okay, I can see the glass here and I, I can check it with my other senses and so on, each of my senses gives me another sensory belief, another sensory experience for which the cause is outside me, okay, outside my experience. Uh, and so what Descartes' thinking here is, unless I can be certain that there is an external cause of my experiences, why might it not be that all there actually is is my experiences? Okay, so I have an experience like this and I move over and I give a kick and you know, I hear an ow. Um, okay, well I've got three experiences and, and they go together in bundles, um, but uh, none of that tells me that there's anything outside me for sure, is there? And, if I draw this, um, if we think that A causes B, we've got to see both A and B, haven't we? We've got to see a correlation between A and B. But if A is our experiences, we can't be here. We can't see their causes as well as the experiences. All we can be is here, isn't it? So we can see our experiences but we can't see the causes of our experiences. But it's our belief that our experiences caused by an external world that makes me form beliefs like there is a class for all of students here. Are you with me? This is an absolute corker of an argument because Descartes is absolutely right that actually the only basis we have for experiences of the external world, uh, sorry, for the existence of the external world is our experiences of the external world plus a belief that these experiences are caused by an external world. Um, unless I can be certain that there is an external cause, all my beliefs about the external world might be false. And Descartes, at this point, he has a real problem because he's trying to imagine that there's nothing out there. All there is is his own experiences. And actually, he says, I can't, I can't do that. 
it's impossible to believe that there's nothing out there. So let me put something out there. Let me put an evil demon out there who's causing me to have experiences that actually aren't real. You know, he's just making me think about all sorts of things. And so the evil demon, actually, you've understood this thought experiment when you realise that the evil demon is unnecessary. Um, he's only brought in because Descartes thinks it's virtually impossible to think that there's not a cause of our experiences. So what he does is he provides a cause that's completely other than we take our experiences to be. And you might have heard of the um, brain in the vat thought experiment. Have anyone, any of you heard of that? Okay, this is a, a, a supposed update of the experience. The idea is that um, I can take a sea slug and if I were this sort of person, I could remove everything except its central nervous system without harming the central nervous system. And I could put it back in its aquarium and it would act as if it were, as if it had a body, as if it was living its life um, completely normally. And you would be exactly the same if I could remove everything but your central nervous system and your peripheral um, senses and so on. Uh, and feed to you experiences as if you were in a lecture theatre listening to Talbot speaking, etc. So it would be true with you as if all these things were true, but they wouldn't be true, would they? The appearances would be there, but the reality wouldn't. And so I don't like the, the brain in a vat version of that thought experiment because you've got to um, import things like scientists and uh, so on. Whereas I think the evil demon is quite a good one because none of us really believe in him. And actually the evil demon is completely irrelevant. You can take him out of the situation. What's important is that we do not know that our experiences are not all there is. We cannot get outside our own experiences in order to see that they're caused by anything. Are you with me? Anyone want to disagree with this thought experiment? No, but could you just produce them a real world analogy? Because I consider that focused. Not really. I, I can do this. I can draw you my picture of my cat versus demon. Um, so, if you like, there's the mind here and the world here. And what Descartes done is he's opened up a gap uh, where he's got the demon. So, you've got a, an experience of a blue chair. Okay, that's blue chair. Um, and you think that in the world there is a blue chair and that that is causing that, okay? And so there's a causation relation here, and you also think there's a similarity relation here. Okay, so you think that that is a good guide to what that's like, and that's causing that. And what the demon has done is he's opened up a gap where all you can see is that, and you've, if you put the demon in there, you can get rid of all this. And as long as that remains the same, how do you know you're not in that position? You don't. 
Are you with Does that help? Okay. Anyone else? Other questions about that? Well, you've said that sometimes you've got rid of the demon, but then you said at the beginning that they can't recognise, that you can't believe that there is only your it's virtually. I, I think I, I completely agree with him. I think it's virtually impossible to think there's nothing but your experiences, um, and I think the demon is just quite useful because that's a cause of your experience. Um, yes, the cause of our experiences may not be as we imagine it. Yes, the cause of the experience is completely other than we imagine it, and so what he's doing is he's taking. This belief that my experiences have an external cause and this belief the experiences have a, a, are a good guide to this cause. And firstly, he's doubting both of them. In other words, there may be nothing. Um, and our senses certainly don't, aren't a good guide to the fact that there's nothing causing them. And then he, he thinks, I can't do this. So he puts a demon in and he's really only questioning that belief at that point. He's allowing that there is an external cause. But, but the demon is unnecessary. The demon can be, it should be got rid of. Does that mean leaving nothing? As the that means leaving nothing. And it's much harder to engage in that thought experiment, but that's what you should be engaging in. Well, he only rejected it because he found it difficult. But it, no, he, he, that's what he wants. Okay, any, anyone have trouble with that? Any, anyone think that... And do you see how the first personal is so very important? Because the fact is, I could say, am I awake? What's your name? David. David. Okay, am I awake? Yes. Okay, and you, you can pinch me, and you One could... Thing. Very, very <laughs> gently, uh, and so on. Um, is this going to help me to know that I'm not in hyperbolical doubt, Cartesian hyperbolical doubt, is it? No. Why not? You're absolutely right. Because he is, he's still behind the veil of perception, isn't he? He's out here, um, and all the experiences he's giving me and pinching me and so on are actually in here. So he, he's behind the veil too. So once you've opened this veil of per perception, you've got a real problem. And that's where Descartes is at the end of Meditation 1. Okay. Right, have I got you all nicely in hyperbolical doubt? Are you all thinking, oh, sod? <laughs> so, uh, I don't even know whether I'm here or not. Quite right, you don't. Well, actually, you know that I am here because that's a logical truth, isn't it? I am here? <laughs> okay. Um, right, so the evil demon argument. Sorry, I keep forgetting I put this question in. Uh, he takes Descartes into hyperbolical doubt. He's got to reject as if false all his beliefs about the external world. Now, this is really tough. OK, this doubting basket is now absolutely chock-a-block full. Um, all his beliefs about the external world are in there. Um, OK, he's got loads of beliefs left about his own experiences. So he's got the belief it's with him as if he's in a room full of students. He's got the belief it's as if with me there's somebody called David who's pinching my arm. He's got the belief uh, it is with me as if... Okay, so there are loads of beliefs he's got left, but they're all it is with me as if beliefs. Are you with me? Okay, so he doesn't believe that this chair is blue. He believes it is with me as if this chair is blue. 
You with me? Completely different set of beliefs. So he's left with the contents of his own mind. And his ploy, perfectly reasonably, uh, is now to reflect on the contents of his own mind to see if he can find any belief of which he is certain. Okay, so his cogito uh, is the belief that he finds. So he's wandering around in his own mind, as it were, thinking, you know, well, what about all... Okay, there are all these beliefs around. Um, uh, am I certain of any of them? There, there's that whole... And actually, it's really quite interesting because... Um, the beliefs that turn out not to be certain and all the beliefs about things that we thought were most certain before and the beliefs that we're left with that are certain are all these ephemeral beliefs about our own experiences and the contents of our own mind. Really interesting, isn't it? It completely turns around our recognition of what we are and what we are, aren't certain of. So... Okay, Descartes wandering around and he suddenly thinks, ha, but I'm thinking. And if I'm thinking, I must exist. And here's the cogito. And right at the beginning of meditation two, he comes across this certainty. And this certainty is, is very, very famous. You all recognized it, even if you, you perhaps weren't sure about how it worked. Most Western people would know something about the cogito, and that shows how, how very important and influential it is. Here is the argument set out logic book style, um, premise one, premise two, and a conclusion. I think if a thing thinks it exists, therefore I exist. Okay, what do you think of this argument? How, how would you go about evaluating it? You don't see how... A thing can think it exists. You don't see how a thing can think it exists. Surely it doesn't think it exists. It's the fact that it is thinking that signifies its existence. Okay. Um, perhaps I'll go on, because his answer to your question is right but i can see why you might not yet think it's an answer to your question um, so let me go on and see if we answer that okay let's the way you evaluate arguments uh, oh i must just say this um 1962 the philosopher hinterker there he is argued that the cogito isn't an inference but a performance now i've just implied that it's an inference and, and i would feel that i was doing him down if I didn't at least nod in his direction and say I am aware of his argument but I don't agree with it and so if you'd like to check it out his arguments here and this is a, a reason why I don't agree with it you can go and have a look at it um, I'm going to ignore it <coughs> okay so the questions that you always ask when you need to evaluate an argument two questions one is, are the premises too true, and does the conclusion follow? Okay, you, those are the only two questions you ever need to ask to evaluate an argument. I'm making it sound very easy. Of course, it might be very difficult to know whether the premises are true. Um, it's not usually quite so difficult to know whether the conclusion follows from the premises. But if we go back, actually, I don't think I need to. Here we are. If these premises are both true, 
then the conclusion does follow, doesn't it? Can we see that? If I think is true, and if it's true that it's a necessary condition of a thing's thinking that it exists, then it also must exist. Does that not follow? Okay, so, so I'm, I'm telling you that the conclusion follows from the premises. So if there's anything wrong with this argument, it's going to be with the premises, not with the argument itself. With me? Okay, let's have a look at whether the premises are true. So this is premise one, I think. Okay, so it's just when he's asking himself whether there's nothing of which he can be certain that Descartes becomes conscious of his own consciousness. Okay, he's been pushed in on himself, hasn't he? Because he can no longer believe that there's an external world out there because he's got that in the doubting basket. So he's not saying it's false, but he's treating it as if false for the purposes of, of his argument. Um, so he knows that it is with him as if he's in a room full of students, let's say. Well, that's what's true of me, it's not true of him. Um, but he doesn't know about the external world itself, so he's become conscious of his own consciousness. And this is hugely important for a philosopher, because... Um, the pages are stuck together. Um... If you think that this is the world that we picture, and this is our picture of the world, usually we're conscious of this, aren't we? Okay? We go around the world forming beliefs about chairs and people and pens and things like that. We're conscious of the world of which we form a picture. We're not conscious of the picture that we form of that world. But as we've sort of got rid of that, what we've got at the moment is, is we're reflecting on our own picture of the world, on our own beliefs about the world, um, which is harder to do than... We might, well, you're already discovering that, aren't you? Um, okay, we don't often become conscious of our picture of the world as opposed to the world that we picture. Can you think of a condition under which we do become conscious? We do, all of us, become conscious of our picture of the world instead of the world that we picture. When does this happen? Anyone? When we use a model. Uh, can you explain a bit more? A map, for instance? Um, no, because the map belongs to the external world, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and the question I'm asking you is, when do you become conscious of your own consciousness in daily life? So instead of becoming conscious of the world that you picture, when do you become conscious of the picture of that world? Possibly. Um, okay, you, so you might reflect on your memory. Okay, there's a more everyday circumstance, actually, when this is gone. When you get things wrong. When you get things wrong, exactly so. So, I came in, I threw my coat down here, 
Um, I now believe that my coat is, is on the floor behind the lectern. So I go to pick up my coat and I think, oh, and I've got a problem, haven't I? I believe that my coat's there because that's where I left it, but I also believe that my coat's not there. And I, what I've got is a contradiction. I've got two beliefs that can't both be true. And I immediately I'm thrown back onto my picture of the world, aren't I? Because to believe that a belief is false is to be thinking about a belief, not to be thinking about what the belief is about. Are you with me? So I have a belief that my coat's behind the lectern. I have another belief that my coat's not behind the lectern. Standing back, I have a belief that these beliefs can't be true together, that they contradict each other. So I'm having beliefs about my beliefs. Okay, so here I've got beliefs about the world and here I've got beliefs about beliefs. Well, an observation is a belief that you're seeing something, isn't it? So I observe that the chair is blue, but I believe that I observe that the chair is blue. Are you with me? Okay. Um, so when you're actually becoming conscious of this, a whole other series of things come up. Because if you think of the um, objects, relations, and properties out here, let's move this along a bit, and the objects, relations, and properties here, you've got a completely different lot, haven't you? So um, the objects of the physical world include chairs and pens and tables and bodies and so on and so forth. And the properties of the physical world include blue, green, um, fast, slow. <coughs> God, I'm running out of ideas. Give me a few properties. Hot, cold, Hot, cold loud, soft, square, circular, etc., etc. Um, and relations will include causation. Um, so one event causes another event. There are spatial relations. One, the pen is on top of the table, etc. Okay, what are the objects of the mental world? Beliefs, thought, thoughts, beliefs. Um, you mentioned memories, um, attitudes. Um, emotions. Okay, what, what are the properties in this world? I mean, are, are your beliefs red or green? Hot or cold? Square or circular? Anything else I can think of? <laughs> okay, what properties do your beliefs have? No, that's a nice one. Hold that thought, but not yet. Oh, sorry, what did somebody else say? Consistency. Uh, coherence. Okay, both of you. You mentioned logic and you mentioned coherence. So that's... Okay, we're talking about relations here rather than properties, and that's absolutely fine. Let's, let's do that. Um, the relations between beliefs are logical relations, aren't they? So one belief uh, entails another. 
So if the first belief is true, the second belief will be true. And uh, one belief um, is uh, evidential support for another belief, or two beliefs are consistent. They can both be true together, or they contradict each other. Now, you don't get objects in the physical world in these rational relations with each other, do, do you? Okay, a pen doesn't entail a blackboard. God, I'm showing my age, aren't I? <laughs> a pen doesn't entail a table. I, I mean, actually, rational relations hold between things in here, not out here. Um, so you don't get two physical objects that are consistent with each other. But what, going back to properties, I've mentioned two, haven't I? Truth and falsehood. Um, a belief can be true or false. Table can't be true or false, can it? A pen can't be true or false. Physical objects can't be true or false at all. Um, beliefs are about things. They have contents. Um, so any belief you have is a belief about something or other, isn't it? Um, interestingly, photographs can be of something. It's quite an interesting thought, isn't it? But usually aboutness or intentionality comes in here. What I'm trying to do is just make you realise that there's a whole slew of things that you haven't really been conscious of until you engaged in this Cartesian thought experiment. And when you're pushed back to think about your picture of the world as opposed to the world that you picture, you're forced to think of all these, these things, of aboutness, intentionality, truth, falsehood, rationality, consistency, contradiction, <coughs> etc. Because all these things then come into focus. Okay, so let's... We're looking at the premise, I think... Descartes' reason for believing the I think lies in his recognition of the fact that he can't doubt a belief unless he has a belief. Can he? Because to know that you doubt a belief, you've got to see that you have the belief and then act on that belief, haven't you? So you can't doubt a belief unless you have a belief. And to have beliefs is to think. So actually, he, well, so, well, let's move to the next one. To doubt it's raining, you've got to believe that it's raining is true, okay? You've got to have a belief with this content, and you've got to believe that that belief is true. So you're attributing a property of truth to that belief. Um, and you've got to entertain the possibility of that very belief, the belief with that content, that it's false or that it might be false, okay? The very act of doubting makes it true that you think. You've got to be thinking if you're doubting, and Descartes recognises that, and therefore has the premise, I think. Does anyone doubt that premise? You can't, can you? Given that you're each doing the experiment for yourself in your own mind, you cannot doubt your own thoughts. Um, the very act of doubting your own beliefs makes it clear that you have beliefs. And that's so even if you cannot know that those beliefs are true. Okay, so the beliefs are still in the doubting basket, but your beliefs about your beliefs, you know that you have them. 
So Descartes is making a distinction between knowing that you have a belief with a given content and knowing that that belief is true. Okay, he, he, he doesn't know that, but he does know that. Of that, he can be absolutely certain. So he's found his certainty. My problem is not so much with, your, with the logic you employ, but with the, the quick definition of making think equal to having beliefs. Um, thinks may be a bit wider than belief. Um, so we sometimes think of, of desires and intentions as other types of thought. Well, I, I, I could imagine examples where the statement that somebody has, has beliefs doesn't necessarily mean that I believe he or she is thinking. So you think that you can imagine a person who has beliefs but isn't thinking? Yeah. Why? How? Somebody who's brainwashed in some shape or form. But they're still thinking, aren't they? They're thinking brainwashed thoughts. It's a very mechanical definition of thinking. Well, I don't see why, because surely thinking is just computing over beliefs, uh, to put it in a... I mean, I think thinking would be something like, I don't know, a workable definition, but something like they're combining thoughts to come to something like a conclusion or a new thought. Well, I mean, and surely it doesn't matter then what the um, source of those thoughts. If I'm thinking P, um, if P then Q, uh, therefore Q, I mean, I could be brainwashed into thinking P and brainwashed into thinking if P then Q. But I could still come from P and P, if P then Q into Q by thinking. Maybe we can do it at a different time. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm not inclined to make a distinction between beliefs and thoughts, except in that I, I agree that thoughts may include things, mental states other than beliefs. Um, and, and the thing about somebody who's not thinking very well, in order to be um, irrational, you've got to be rational, haven't you? Um, a rational person is somebody who acts for good reasons, and an irrational person is somebody who acts for bad reasons. Something that doesn't act for reasons at all, like this table, um, doesn't act for good reasons or bad. In order to be irrational, you've got to be rational. It still exists. Uh, well, we're not sure about that, aren't we, at the moment? <laughs> I mean, the table exists is in the doubting basket. I'm absolutely certain that it is with me that I have a belief about this table. I believe that it exists. Um, but I don't know that that belief's true. Not at this point of the meditations. Just found myself reacting again to a use of good and bad. When did uh, can you, you tell me? Good, uh, well, I'm interested to know what you mean by good reasons. Oh, I know, good reasons and bad reasons. I mean, I can understand logical reasons and illogical reasons. I can understand uh, someone who has well, been in one state and gone to another thinking state. But what do you mean by good and bad? Um, I'm, I'm really using them very intuitively. I, I think we all understand that somebody can act for bad reasons. I mean, if I think Fred loves me uh, and... Bill, who knows him from old, thinks that he just, you know, he's doing it again. He's again acting as if he loved me. Um, Bill thinks that the reason I have for doing something, 
I'm, I'm having trouble with this. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not good or bad. It's, it's heading in the wrong direction, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, <coughs> I, I, I wasn't putting up. Sorry, I wasn't. I just, it's just that jarred with me because I was trying to, trying to understand how you were thinking, how you're thinking well, to use those words, and I can't fit it into the. If I had been taking something now. I shouldn't have been, I might believe that there are pink rats running up this wall. And the fact that I believe that there are pink rats running up this wall might cause me to run out of the room. So my reason for running out of this room is my belief that there are pink rats running up okay. and down the room. Now, actually, that might be a good reason. I mean, if you believe that there are pink rats running up and down the wall, you would also run out of the room, perhaps. Does that make it a good reason? But, but you might also say to me, why would I believe that? Surely it's obviously a false belief, and therefore it's a bad reason. Does that help? Not really, because... OK, let, let's leave this behind, because I, I don't think it's, it's sensible... Sorry, I don't think it's central to the point that no, we're yes. making here. So, there's a distinction between <coughs> knowing that we have a belief with a given content, knowing that we have a belief that it's raining, and knowing of that belief that it's true. So there's a distinction between my knowing that the chair... That, sorry, that I have a belief that the chair is blue and my knowing of that belief that the chair is blue, that it's true. OK? We can be certain of the first one. We can't be certain at all of the second. You with me? OK, so on recognising this, Descartes can be certain of the general claim, I think, or if you prefer, I believe, um, and he can also be certain of many specific claims. I believe it is raining, I believe I have a body, I believe that, you know, etc., etc., etc. He has beliefs about all his experiences. This isn't a problem. So actually, he's brought many beliefs um, out of his doubting basket, but he still can't be sure whether any of these beliefs are true. So he's certain only of the truth it is with me as if it's raining, i.e. he's certain of the belief that it's raining, he's not certain of the truth. I'm labouring this just because it is so very important. Um, so you have a whole slew of beliefs of this kind. It is with you as if you're watching a lecture by Talbot. There I am down there. Um, and you can just reflect on all your other beliefs at the moment. It is with me as if. A uh, whole load of beliefs that you have, and given that where you are in hyperbolical doubt, you can't be certain of any of these beliefs about the external world that they're true. But you can be certain of these as-if beliefs, even if you're tucked up in bed and only dreaming that you're watching Talbot Lecture. Because even if you're only dreaming, it's still with you as if you are watching Talbot Lecture. So... Um, if you reflect on the contents of your consciousness and remember that you have to go with Descartes through this thought experiment, um, you can be certain that you're thinking and you can be certain also that you believe whatever it is that you believe. What you can't be certain of is the truth of those beliefs. So Descartes' first premise, I think, is grounded on the fact that as beliefs are immediately accessible to consciousness, a believer cannot but know that he has beliefs. So the I think, even an evil demon cannot get between Descartes and his own beliefs, um, the contents of the beliefs or that he has them. Um, so the evil demon can cause Descartes to doubt whether his beliefs are true, can't cause him to doubt that he has the beliefs at all. 
So Descartes' first premise is conclusively established on the basis, and this is a philosophical word, that it's incorrigible, this belief. If S believes P, then P is true. So P is an incorrigible belief if, if S believes P, then P is true. And I, I think, or I believe, is an incorrigible belief. Okay, let's get on to the second premise. Um, it's necessarily the case that if a thing thinks, it exists. Okay, there are two ways we can understand this premise. One would be as an inductive generalization. So everything that thinks exists. Okay, we, I've seen, you know, in the past, you, you think and you exist, etc., etc. Do you know what an inductive generalization is? I'm having trouble with this one, and you'll see why in a minute. But okay, um, the sun's rising. I've seen the sun rise every day in the history of the world, therefore I believe it's going to rise tomorrow. Everything I've ever seen think, I've also seen exist, therefore everything that thinks exists. Can you see why it would be a problem if we interpret it thus? Um, if the premise were an inductive generalization, Descartes would be generalizing from his own case, I think, therefore I exist, to a general case, and he can't do that, can he? I mean, he's got no grounds whatsoever for, for doing that. The only thing of whose existence he can be certain is his own. Um, so he certainly can't inductively generalize to, to anything. Um, Generalizations from single instances are always questionable, um, and from this particular instance, it's even more questionable. So, if we were to understand it as an inductive generalization, we could reasonably reject it, and with it, Descartes' argument. Do you remember I said that an argument, uh, to be good, its premises have got to be true, and its conclusion has got to follow from the premises. We know that the conclusion follows from the premises, and we're looking at the premises to see whether they're good. We've seen one is, but if we can reject the second, yay, we can get rid of the argument. Um, and we would be able to do that if Descartes was talking about it as an inductive generalization. But Descartes explicitly denies that the cogito is based on an inductive generalization. He himself points out that he wouldn't be entitled to any such claim. And he claims instead that it's self-evident. It's seen by a simple inspection of the mind. Right. Okay, this suggests that we should understand premise two as expressing a logical truth, one that presents itself to us as true as soon as we think about it. Um, there are such truths. I mean, it's, it's undoubtedly the case. I mean, if we think it cannot be the case that he's a bachelor and he's not unmarried. Okay, what did I mean to say there? It cannot be the case that he's a bachelor. Oh, yes, that's all right. It cannot be the case that he's a bachelor and he's not a bachelor. I mean, the minute you try and think that, you reject it, don't you? Can't be true. And the same here. A person can't be in two places at once. The minute you think about that, you see it has to be true. Okay, these are logical truths because the concepts involved in those beliefs require you. So you can't think of a square circle. If I say to you, are there any square circles, you, you don't have to move from your armchair to find out whether that's true or not. 
is all you have to do. You look at your meaning of square and you look at your meaning of circle and you see immediately there can't be any square circles. So what Descartes is saying is that, um, ah, yes. Yeah, what Descartes is saying is that if you look at your concept of existence and you look at your concept of thought, of thinking, you'll see that if a thing thinks, then it exists. Do you accept that? It's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, basically, if the thing has a property at all of any kind, then it's got to exist, hasn't it? Um, that's just part of the meaning of existence. It's part of the meaning of think. Um, Things don't have minds. Can I... Um, I'll come back to that and say, I, just, I want to um, skip over that because we haven't got enough time. I'm very happy to come back to it if, um, if important. A logical truth is not an empirical truth. An empirical truth is established by observation. A logical truth is established by reflection. Um, and I've just shown you that arguably, if a thing thinks it exists, is a truth that's established by reflection. Um, so, oh, here I am. There you are. They're established by observation, logical truths by reflection. We know by reflection that circles can't be square. And it's only by observation that we'd know something like somebody with the uh, Huntington's disease gene will get Huntington's disease. Okay, we can't know that through reflection. That's an empirical truth, whereas circles can't be square is a logical truth. So, we can see that it's reasonable to believe Descartes' first premise, because when we reflect on the contents of our consciousness, it's not possible to doubt that we're thinking. And Descartes' second premise is also um, reasonable, uh, because a moment's reflection believes that it... Uh, generates the fact that it must be true. It's, it's a logical truth. So, as Descartes' conclusion follows deductively from the premises, we can also be certain that the conclusion is true. So the premises are true and the conclusion follows from the premises, therefore we know that Descartes does indeed exist. And each of us can be certain of our own existence in exactly the same way, because each of us can engage in exactly this thought experiment with respect to ourselves. Um, what you don't know is very much about yourself. The only thing you know about yourself is that you think. You don't know that you have hands, that you're wearing a black dress or anything like that. Um, you have beliefs that you're wearing a black dress, that you have hands and so on, but you know that you think. Okay, you know that you're a thinking thing. Okay, so if David if Descartes had to stop at the cogito, he'd be a solipsist of the present moment. Okay, he, he, all he would be certain of is his own existence and the nature of the thoughts that he's having at that time. Um, and each of us, of course, has the same problem. We have to go on from the cogito um, if we're going to build any of the things that we take ourselves to know. So the cogito is only the starting point. Uh, famously, he doesn't stop there, um, but I'm afraid I'm going to. So we're not going to take you any further than this. We're going to leave you in hyperbolical doubt, certain of your own existence, but not certain of anything else, including the external world. And we've got a quarter of an hour for questions.
Yes. Yes. Uh, not, uh, not at this point uh, in the next meditation, though, he, he starts to introduce God. He, uh, what he claims is that um, all he knows is that he's a thing that thinks. So he starts to look around amongst his other concepts and he finds the concept of God and he thinks, oh, that's interesting. I believe that God exists. Um, what makes me think this? And so at this point, he's still not thinking that believing God is true. Um, you said that Descartes claims... Can you speak up? You said that Descartes claims it's self-evident. It is seen as a simple inspection of the mind. So do we then use language of saying a simple inspection of the mind reflection, a simple inspection of the outside world is observed? I'm, I'm sorry, I could, your voice, voice went down again. Can you? Well, you make the distinction between reflection and observation. And Descartes said that this is self-evidently true because it is revealed by a simple inspection of the mind. So is an inspection of the mind the same as reflection, but an inspection of the outside world is observation? Yes. I mean, by inspection of the mind, he's talking about introspection, not, not observation. We don't observe our own minds, do we? We, we introspect them. Um, we reflect on our thoughts. We don't observe our thoughts. Um, what's his assumption about the eye? And I think, I was why does he assume thoughts of his? Um, okay, one of the um, oh, and I can't remember which one. I ought to remember which one. Uh, one of the reply, uh, objections that are in the meditations is why do you think you're entitled to I think rather than just there is a thought. Um, to which the reply is probably, well, he's got to have a, a way of locating thoughts, hasn't he? He's got to have a way of putting them together because you don't have an argument unless you have thoughts, um, a unity of consciousness. You could say the thoughts are here um, or you could say that they're, they're, the I is the unity of consciousness. So. All the eye is really at this point is a placeholder, if you like. It, it's keeping the thoughts together. Because you don't have an argument unless the thought. I mean, if you think P and you think if P then Q, neither of you is going to think Q, are you? But if I think P and if P then Q, it's, it's going to occur to me that Q. Um, but you have no reason to think you because you haven't got the two thoughts in the same mind. Isn't, isn't uh, when you say there has to be a locus for the thinking, I mean, that is a weakness in these arguments. Yes. But surely, all you could say, all you could say from that argument is that the thinking is happening, but you can't say where it's happening. Well, you can, you, thinking is happening, and what's more, there's a unity to the thinking that's happening. It doesn't mean to say the eye is there. Well, yes, but all the uh, he doesn't claim to know anything about the eye except it thinks. I mean, he, he's very keen on that point that he doesn't know anything <coughs> about the eye except it thinks. It's it's what holds together the different thoughts, and he needs the different thoughts because without those he hasn't got an argument. Um, Can you ask a bit about the context that Descartes was doing this? 
motivation? Um, yes. This is, that's a big question. No, no, it's a very, it's an interesting question. It has a quite a, an interesting answer. Um, the answer is that Descartes had just, um, I, I mentioned the fact that he, he was already quite famous by the time he engaged in this sort of thought experiment. He'd just written a book called The World, I think it was its title. Um, and in The World, he argued that the, now hang on, I always get this the wrong way around, that the um, earth goes around the sun rather than that the sun goes around the earth. Well, at that point, Galileo was taken in by the Inquisition for arguing that the um, earth goes around the sun. So Descartes, very sensibly, now this is a good reason, thought, right, okay, I'm not going to publish this book just yet. <laughs> um, and what he's faced with is, it, I mean, he was a Christian, most people were in those days, most people in, in this part of the world anyway, um, who believes, but he has reason to believe P and he has reason to believe not P. P and not P cannot both be true. So what is knowledge? Well, and this got him thinking about knowledge and justification and he started thinking, well, how can you be sure that your beliefs are true? And he actually shut himself away um, and he, he sat in an oven um, that this, the story goes. I mean, it isn't, doesn't quite work like that, but it, it was... Um, and he, he expressly said that you cannot engage in this thought experiment when you're thinking practically. I mean, for practical purposes, you've got to assume that the coffee maker exists and you've got to assume, you know, the, this happening and so on. You, this, is a, this is purely a philosophical thought experiment. Um, and, and it takes place in, within your own mind. Um, and it's a thought experiment asking what is the nature of knowledge, what are the conditions for knowledge, um, what is justification, is there any foundation for, for our claim to knowledge, and so on. And he ends up concluding that there is. Um, so he isn't the sceptic that people tend to think he is. Um, he he preempts scepticism, goes through it through hyperbolical doubt, and comes out at the other end. Um, but we're not going that far. Any other questions? Anyone think that Descartes' argument is a bit suspicious? Go on. Um, well, I don't really understand why he has to go through the whole argument about identifying things as beliefs, which effectively, you know, it's, it's a model, when we talk about beliefs, we're, we're modelling this idea that there are such things called beliefs and they have these properties and relations to what thinking. That's just our sort of um, model in our minds. In order to model that, in the first place, we have to think. We're, we, that's the definition of thinking. So, so what's, what's the objection? Well, it's, it's more that you don't need to go through that. Sort of say I use a slightly different word to think, maybe something like reflect. I reflect. Well, I mean, basically, in the meditations, which incidentally I do recommend that you read, they're, they're very easy to read. He, he, they're very philosophically dense, but they're very easy to read. And one of the things he says, I mean, the cogito itself takes up a matter of a paragraph or so. He says, "But what am I talking about? In order to doubt, I've got to think." Therefore, I think, I've, here's my certainty. And then he goes on to say, and, and 
So maybe I've been labouring it, but he doesn't. <laughs> right. But he, he also, I mean, he also makes this idea of existence, which of course we don't have a definition for that. I mean, we have an intuitive idea. Well, you say you don't have a definition. You don't have a definition of truth either, but do you know how to use it? Well, we know how to question it. I mean, we can question it. You would have no trouble if my saying your belief that the chair is blue is true. Um, you know exactly what I mean. You know how to use that word, but you don't have a definition of truth. I mean, we, we often don't have definitions of words that we're quite capable of using. Yes, but and, and the dictionary has a definition. When we look into those, we quite often uncover... Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Actually, they're not actually entitled to. Absolutely. Actually, if, it, if I force you to think about what you mean by truth, I can get you tied up in all sorts of knots. But the fact is, we have an everyday understanding of truth, and, and we, we can use that everyday understanding. We, we can communicate by means of it. But, but actually, it's a philosophical question when we actually say, what is truth? What is it for a belief to be true? Major question. Um, so the same, you, you're, same thing could be true of existence. Oh, yes. This intuitive idea <laughs> yep. is sort of it's formed in this environment of an external world with us within this external world, and that's kind of how we... Well, we're, we're going to look a, a bit at existence later, um, but you're absolutely right, existence. Um, philosophical logic, the logic of philosophy, uh, sorry, the philosophy of logic, um, takes concepts like truth, existence, possibility, um, you think of any other? And take those three, truth, existence, possibility, that we use all the time, um, and says, well, okay, what is truth? And there are lots of theories of truth. There are, there are books that would fill this room about truth. There are books that fill this room about existence. I mean, one of the th questions we're going to look, look at later is whether unactualized possibilities exist. We'll look at that later, maybe after lunch when you've had a glass of wine. Um, after supper, rather. Um, and what's the other one? Truth, existence and, uh, and possibility. Yes, well, okay, the, and the, what is possibility? I mean, what is it that makes true that something's possible? Um, so these are huge philosophical questions. So you're absolutely right that there's a sense in which we know the meaning, and there's another sense in which we don't know the meaning at all. And there is the jobs for philosophers in between. Any other questions? Have I shut you all up? Surely not. Um, going back to this thing about uh, what does he mean? Speak up. Going back to this thing about what does he mean by the I, I think there's another formulation the cogito, it's not the cogito because it's a different formulation, but um, does he not say somewhere um, it cannot be doubted that there is doubting? Yes, because I mean that. It refutes itself. Yes, yes, it cannot be doubted that there is doubting. Um, that doesn't bring in an eye or anything like that. He does definitely make the cogito, the I statement, but, but he is questioned, um, and, and I'll look it up in the break, um, who it is that makes the objection to him, that he's not entitled to the I. But does he not give these two different formulations? Uh, he does, yeah, yeah. Um, but he definitely comes down on the I one. Yeah. Any other questions? No? In that case, we can release you early and you can go and have coffee. <laughs>